0: With the number of billion-dollar disasters increasing, we've realized we not only have to understand the physical science behind extreme weather and natural disasters, but also the social science. Y'all, if you're into social science, if you're into the cognitive science behind how we can reduce disaster impacts, you're going to love this episode of the GeoTrek podcast. Our guest is Dr. Laura Myers, Senior Research Scientist and Director of Resiliency at the Alabama Center for Insurance Information and Research at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. Dr. Myers has conducted multiple studies and service assessments about the behavior of the public And emergency response networks regarding various disaster weather and crime events hey everyone my name is dr hal host of the geotrek podcast if you're new to the podcast we explore the world looking for stories that really tell us uh, all about extreme weather and natural disasters we're trying to do three things on the podcast number one help you understand the science behind extreme weather and natural disasters help to understand the impacts of these disasters on society, and then understand ways that you can mitigate and prepare for these disasters to make yourself less at risk for you and your and your family, making you more resilient from anything that mother nature can throw at you. Hey everyone, uh, really excited to be on this podcast this week. Excited to have Dr. Myers with us. And without any further introduction, we're gonna start this conversation now with Dr. Laura Myers from the University of Alabama. Laura, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Laura, you and your team are doing such great work with social sciences in natural disasters. Could you walk us through how you got involved in that work?
1: Well, I am a criminologist by trade, and so I have focused on first responders for a very long time in regards to what they do in all kinds of man-made and uh, natural disasters. And after 9-11, there was a big interest in emergency management, but there were no emergency management professors or researchers. And so I was asked if I'd like to do that, and I really did. And so I started working on studying the weather disaster enterprise, focusing on all of the professionals who work in the field, and then focusing on the human behavior aspects of the public in regards to Uh, warning preparedness, mitigating disasters, and recovering and responding.
0: That's interesting. So was this work more academic in nature, or were you involved a lot with, say, like training seminars and interacting directly with the public? Very
1: applied research as opposed to academic research. Um, The interest was in getting information to the public, working with the various agencies and institutions that were involved, And it was much more interesting work because it had a direct application to changing the warning process, educating the public, and helping agencies do the jobs the way they wanted to do the jobs. There was a lot of concern that they were reaching the public and helping the public make the best decisions possible.
0: Well, and Laura, that was a really interesting time that you got involved with this. That first decade of this century was interesting, not only with 9-11, but then with a lot of huge natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina.
1: Exactly. Hurricane Katrina was just a a very interesting, you know, epic event for understanding how systems work to deal with events. Why did Katrina happen in the first place the way it did? Um, You know, there was the whole warning process. There were the impact issues. Um, New Orleans and that region knew that if they got a Cat 5 hurricane, it was going to be as devastating as it was. They had advanced notice of that. And so there was a lot of um, work done on how we could be better at preparing for big hurricanes like that. And we're still studying Katrina to this day.
0: Well, that's a good point. It wasn't like Katrina hit New England or some place that they said, oh, we never would have thought this could happen. Right. It it hit a place that we all knew was vulnerable. It sounds like you're saying it was complex and it's been studied and researched. And and we've we've been um, doing a lot of science, it sounds like, after Katrina to understand how it happened.
1: We really have. And there's a bunch of social scientists like myself who've looked at it, meteorologists, engineers. It's a really multidisciplinary approach to understanding policy and government and emergency management and environmental systems. It is that complex.
0: Sure. Um, That's so interesting. And and obviously, I I wish I could say Katrina was the last devastating hurricane to hit the Gulf Coast. It's not. Even just last year, we saw devastating Hurricane Ian in southwest Florida with tremendous financial losses, unfortunately, a large loss of life. I know that you conducted research post-Ian on evacuation decisions, as well as misunderstanding about the cone of uncertainty. Could you tell us what you found in this research you've been doing?
1: Well, it was a very interesting event. Uh, Anytime you're dealing with the Florida Peninsula and storms approaching the Florida Peninsula, it's a really interesting factor. A lot of the social science work looks at people's experience with hurricanes. If they haven't recently uh, experienced a hurricane, you've got a lot of people who aren't really sure about what they're supposed to do and what's gonna happen. Um, You also have the issue of people compare um, the current hurricane to the one that they went through most recently. And in this case, it was Charlie for um, that region. And there's a real tendency to compare to prior events and try to downgrade and justify what is coming. And so a lot of that was happening with this. People were like, well, you know, it's going to weaken. It's going to divert. It's not going to be as bad as Charlie. And so the whole messaging process of trying to get people to understand that this is not like a previous hurricane, no two hurricanes are alike. And so you're trying to break through that psychology of justification that people feel like it's not going to happen here or it's not going to be that bad. And there was such a significant population at risk in all of this. With the cone of uncertainty, there's a lot of messaging issues about um, exactly what does that mean to the public and what does it mean to government and the partners that are involved. And people, again, like to justify and think that if you're within the cone of uncertainty, that's where the impacts are gonna be. And in fact, that's not what the cone of uncertainty is. The cone of uncertainty is about the path. It's not about where the impacts are gonna be. And so um, with Hurricane Ian, it was just another event in many events where the messaging was about trying to understand that and trying to get that information across. And again, they were up against that justification psychology of, well, you know, I'm outside the cone. It's not going to bother me. They also had the issue of, you know, at first they thought it was going to go toward Tampa and that's a highly populated area. So there was a lot of attention focused on that. And so you've got that issue of places that are not as populated, who don't think they're getting enough information. They don't truly understand their risk. And then it comes down to that evacuation decision making. Government officials, for whatever reasons, make their evacuation decisions for their communities based on this information. And if they don't have a good understanding, if they're trying to justify it, they may not give enough lead time to get people out in time and so that's what happened with Ian is there were a lot of delayed um, evacuation orders and then people were confused people weren't sure they're also not really aware of how the path of the um, hurricanes change um, the National hurricane or the National Weather Service director talks about how hurricanes wobble and people are not aware of how they wobble. They, they're not aware of how they're rapidly intensifying now. They're not as aware of storm surge versus wind. And in this case, in many recent cases, the inland flooding. And so just really trying to get those risks across was a big problem. And then there was the issue of a lot of people were not going to leave regardless. So a lot of good work was done in the messaging. All of these issues were addressed, but it's trying to connect to these um, populations. It's trying to, you know, get through that justification psychology and then knowing there are some people that are just not going to leave for whatever reason. So that's led to some new outcomes that you'll probably want to hear about um, efforts at vertical evacuation and also how to imagine inland flooding.
0: Yeah, that is fascinating. I mean, there's so many different angles there to that that story. Like you said, the focus was on Tampa early on. A lot of these areas that had deadly impact were actually just outside the cone, right? I mean, the, the storm track... Uh, followed kind of the right edge of that cone as the cone shifted. But then a lot of those deadly impacts like storm surge and some of the strong winds were actually outside the cone. I wanted to ask you, I was at a workshop and a professional said, you know, if there's a late evacuation order, a lot of times people are not hearing that for the first time and immediately packing up and leaving. They almost need, I don't know if it's a 12, 24, 36 hour process where they're reaching out to their friends, their family, they're, they're processing this with their community and maybe if, if they hear three or four of their friends are evacuating, then they might be more likely to evacuate. Do you see that happen sometimes that people need a little time like to process this and maybe a, a delay from when the evacuation is issued until they actually do it?
1: Yeah, that that happens all the time. And, and it's really kind of how decision making works. You need to hear it from multiple sources. Um, people have different trusted sources and they tend to trust their family, their neighbors, uh, leaders in their communities. It could be you know, religious leaders in the community. It's not necessarily the government officials. And so they have to have enough time to kind of work through that. And with a hurricane, typically you have you know, several days and um, that they go through that process and make those decisions. One of the problems we've had most recently is some of these storms um, have had a very short lead time. Hurricane Michael is a good example. And we did an assessment on Hurricane Michael, talked to the public about it, and that was the problem. They didn't have enough days to go through that process that you just described. And it was a busy week. It was a three-day weekend. It was election season. People were focused on other things. And the weather enterprise was very, very concerned that they did not have enough days to break through all of that noise and repeat that message over and over and over again. And so that led to some really bad outcomes um, in that region because a lot of people just you know, really didn't take notice until it was about 24 to 48 hours out. And then they were like, well, you know, if I have to leave, I'll leave, I'll wait till it gets to a, a cat three and leave. And again, that's an issue of not having um, a good understanding of rapid intensification. And that's what sure. happened.
0: Yeah, no, that is really interesting. And really, you're, you're connecting with social and cognitive science here. I notice now when I listen to commercials, they'll say the same phrase five times and I'm thinking, okay, I heard you the first time, but I'm sure there's science behind there that says just keep repeating the message, right?
1: That's true. And it, it's really interesting when you look at the research on that and, and how that works, because you never know at what point in the repetition of that message that it clicks with somebody and you know what sticks. Because what happens is we get closer to the onset of an event people start to take notice because they're hearing it over and over again. They're hearing it from different sources. And that's how our brains work. We start to say, well, maybe I should pay attention to this because a bunch of people are talking about these things. And so it's really critical from a communications theory perspective that we understand how that works. Because we also get people who say, well, we're fatigued from hearing the message over and over again. And, you know, I tell the weather enterprise, it's like, well, even though it may be fatiguing some people, it may be the first time it gets somebody's attention, or it may be the first time they're hearing it, and you've already said it 10 times. And so it's important to get it out and. Every different way you can get it out, say it consistently, there's a consistency issue so that they're hearing the same messages. If there's inconsistency in it, it's going to lead to confusion. And so there's there's a whole bunch of communication dynamics that are at play.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. It it sounds complex, but like you're saying, um, maybe for one person, they've heard it 10 times, maybe for another person, it's their first, or maybe for someone, the magic number is four, and they hear it from four credible sources and they say, okay, I'm going to leave. Exactly. Um, Really interesting. Laura, sticking with the hurricane theme and, and Hurricane Ian, I know you participated in an integrated warning team meeting with stakeholders in both Tampa and Punta Gorda, Florida, following Ian for context of our listeners, Tampa really missed a direct hit from Ian, even though originally we thought that might happen. Farther down the coast in places like Fort Myers and Punta Gorda, they got the direct hit from Cat uh, Cat 4 Winds and in some areas devastating storm surge. How did you notice a difference in the stakeholders, say in Tampa versus areas like Fort Myers and Punta Gorda following Hurricane Ian?
1: Yeah, it was a really interesting experiment to have that comparison um, because, you know, typically you don't get that. And so, you know, Tampa was really interesting. Their stakeholders were like, wow, you know, we missed this. And, you know, we're really lucky we missed this. And so there wasn't the um, after effects I see with stakeholders with that group. They were more concerned with what about next time? You know, what do we do next time? And how can we improve our processes for next time? And, and that's typically what I see when I'm talking to stakeholders who had a near miss. It's like we were lucky we missed it. Um, and so how can we improve our processes? With Punta Gorda, it was you know, they were still in the after effects of such devastation. And I think it's really important to understand that stakeholders go through a lot when they take a direct hit like that. They've seen a lot of things, they've been a part of a lot of things, and they're in the recovery process, and they're analyzing, okay, what went wrong? I think that's the biggest difference is what went wrong. And I get that from a lot of communities when I look at what's happened to them. They they focus on what they think went wrong as opposed to what went right. And so my job when I go into an integrated warning team like that is to produce the research for them on what went right. So that they realize that what they did, did work, there were best practices, a lot of lives were saved. You know, to them, the noise is the fatalities and the injuries and the devastation. And they don't focus on the good outcomes. So I go in and talk about, you know, the good outcomes, how many lives were saved, how many people were satisfied with the information they got. And then they're more open to what did go wrong. Why were people confused? Um, why did evacuation orders come when they did? Because typically what you see in a situation like that is a bunch of finger pointing. It's like you sure. know somebody didn't do something when they should have done something. And that's what led to these bad outcomes. And the social science research shows you how those things transpired. It's not about blame. It's about the justification psychology. It's about an understanding of the information that's available. It's about breakdowns in communication. It's about the lack of awareness or knowledge in the outreach that decision makers need to make the best decisions possible. And so they were very open to that and working through that. And I've done that with numerous types of events and been able to kind of refocus the blame game back to, okay, what do we need to change? What do we need to do? And what do we need to keep doing
0: that worked? Well, that's a good point. I mean, you may have a community that did eight things right, but if the focus is on slapping people on the wrist and the blame game, it just, it starts the whole dialogue off in such a negative place, right? That it's tearing down those relationships. sounds like you're coming in in a whole more holistic approach, looking at what they did well and then what can be improved and and understanding the system more.
1: Absolutely. That's where that cone of uncertainty issue emerged is because the National Weather Service and the Hurricane Center, they could see the problems with the interpretation of the cone of uncertainty. And that's probably the main reason that different decisions were made was just a lack of awareness about the cone of uncertainty. So that's opened up a whole new discussion all over, you know, hurricane prone areas about how can we do better with the cone of uncertainty not just how those counties that were affected by hurricane Ian can do better how can everybody do better with that because Others are going to make the same errors with it if we don't either educate people better about what it is and what it does, or we make modifications to it. And both things are at play right now. How do we educate better about the cone of uncertainty? How do we get that information out? Um, and are there other things we can do Uh, besides the cone of uncertainty or modifications of the cone of uncertainty, because the cone of uncertainty is just about the path. There's a bunch of other impacts that are not even included in that particular product. And so there's also the dynamic of making sure everybody's aware of all the other risks that are involved.
0: Sure. Laura, I'm just curious, has anyone talked about getting rid of the cone and doing maps of the probability of storm surge flooding, rainfall flooding, and damaging winds, and just not even showing where the eye may go. You know, has anyone talked about that?
1: Yes, and and they're all talking about it. In fact, um, I've been in some integrated warning team meetings and some tropical workshops where they're doing exactly what you just described, being able to show the risks of all of those different things, showing the paths of all of those different types of things and what the probabilities are, uh, what the locations will be and what the impacts will be. And those have been around. Those have all been out there. And so what they're looking at is, you know, how do we create new products and get those products in the hands of the right people in the dissemination process without confusing them? Because you're adding a lot of different layers.
0: That's right. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Mm Mm-hmm. It sounds yeah. like, you know, hurricane communication just inherently is complex, right? You have this storm that's throwing these different hazards at different areas, right? Um, it's, I know sometimes, for example, we have the category system, really difficult to categorize three hazards with one number, right? I mean, we, exactly. we know it, that that category number is just about the wind, but um, I know sometimes people get confused and, and they just think that's a general risk number or something like that.
1: They do. And, you know, and that goes back to our brains again. And our psychology is we're very binary. You know, and so it's like, you know, we we take the cat number and we go, okay, well, that's risk, no risk, you know, and and what we associate with those cat numbers. And a lot of people don't realize that it's only one impact. It's it's win. And so how can you convey that to the psychology of the mind who wants to make everything that simple and that binary? And so you've got to move people to a higher level of complexity and not confuse them and because if you confuse them then they panic they turn sure, away from sure. information and you're not making any difference and so people are working really hard to figure that out i've been really amazed at all the work that's being done and i think the solution is in the outreach the education sure. that's what we've seen over time is like the broadcast meteorologists and the media and social media putting information out to explain what these things mean, and so that people will understand when they see it or hear about it, that it is much more than just one type of impact.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad to hear there's so much great research going on in that. And, and I know that a lot of people are engaging, you know, just because these storms have such high impact. Um, so just really, really glad to hear that. Laura, I know that um, it's six years now since Hurricane Harvey flooded much of Metro Houston with more than 40 Fifty inches of rain. It was a tremendous flood event. And it was interesting seeing so many people being rescued while there were skyscrapers and apartment buildings in their background where they they could have vertically gotten up. Um, I, I know that you've talked even in this podcast a little bit about vertical evacuation. You've been involved in, in some research and some dialoguing about vertical evacuation in urban spaces. Could you tell us a little bit about those perspectives and that research you've done?
1: Yes. Um, So I've worked with a couple of National Weather Service offices, one in Houston, one in Tampa, about this concept of vertical evacuation. And before we even started that concept, we had been looking at various events where vertical evacuation would have been a better solution. And we actually looked at this from an infrastructure perspective and looked at where fatalities were on direct coastlines. And so on coastlines, and I'll speak particularly about um, Hurricane Michael and Mexico Beach, um, along their particular coastline there at Mexico Beach, um, they have a lot of 1960s one-story bungalows through there. And then they have several three, four, five story um, buildings, homes, high rises through there. And so several people stayed in those bungalows um, during the, the storm surge, as well as in the, the high rises. The ones in the high rises actually started having to climb up vertically going up to survive that storm surge. The fatalities were in those one story bungalows. And so that got us looking at the whole infrastructure issue and talking about what structures you cannot stay in in a storm surge and why you should evacuate and how you've got to get it out of your mind that you could survive in a one story building in a storm surge. And so that took us to Hurricane Ian. And that's where the whole vertical evacuation thing has really come to play is people will wait too long to evacuate and then they decide they're going to evacuate and it's too late. So they get in their cars and they start driving out and they flood out, then they drown trying to get out. So the idea is now that we know that if you can vertically evacuate, if you wait too long, then your better option is to get to that location where you can vertically evacuate. So you're gonna need a plan for where is the closest vertical location that you're gonna be able to get into and get to the highest levels of that location as quickly as possible. And that's a real challenge because you know, the, the whole system is built on getting as far away from it as early as possible as you possibly can. So now we're saying, okay, there's an option for people who don't get out in time and who are gonna to try to get out and this may be your best option. So we're looking at how do you do that? How do you plan for that? How do you um, you know, get that into the messaging without creating a sense of, oh, I can stay until I need to vertically evacuate? Because the preference would be to get them out completely.
0: Sure, sure. And it, it sounds like these areas where there's maybe not enough lead time or people wait too long Getting into a hotel or an office building or, or something, a, a condo, something that can get you up several levels maybe a better solution than the person trying to drive through flood water and, and escape at the last minute. Absolutely. No, that, that's that's fascinating. You know, I live just down the road from Houston and Galveston, Texas, where we have a lot of dangers and risks to wind and storm surge. And, you know, I was recently talking to a friend of mine that lives in in downtown Galveston, in mixed use uh, type of development. So these are apartments and condos that are above commercial um, space like antique shops and restaurants. And I, I, it recently hit me, you know, some, some of these mixed use landscapes where people are, where there are maybe multiple levels of residential building in an urban setting above commercial, their flood risk is really low because they're 30, 40 feet in the air. Um, I, know, I know now in the recent decades, the our culture has really pushed towards single family residential. As people talk about potentially retreating from the coast, do you think there could be a space for some creative ideas to maybe create mixed use where people live in maybe apartments or condos like above commercial space in in some of these coastal or, or flood prone communities?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of work being done on, you know, how do we build along the coastline, um, especially, you know, after a coastline has been devastated, what do we build back? And what do we do with current locations that haven't been impacted to the point of you know destruction? How do we fortify those? How do we, you know, work with those? And then how do we, like you're pointing out, How do we work with the community in terms of what is a safe place to live? And, you know, how can you make good judgments about your home structure? and that is changing quite a bit. I work with a program here in Alabama for coastal fortification and just in the way we build, just in the way you know we construct our roofs and you know how we build these homes has a lot to do with wind damage and we can fortify against wind. We can raise these buildings, we can do what you're talking about in terms of what is below us versus what is above us and fortify that way and so there's a lot of work being done in that area. There's a lot of incentives that are out there. In Alabama, there's an incentive to fortify, and uh, it's an insurance um, incentive. You get a reduction in your insurance, which is especially critical if you're on the coastline. And so if you're on the Alabama coast and you're looking to buy a home, you can look in the description and see if it's fortified. Um, There's there's three standards of fortification. So, you know, we're talking about multifamily buildings. We're talking about single family buildings. We're talking about educating them. We're also talking about educating the building industry in terms of how you build for um, fortification and how you do those things. And there's been a lot of communities, um, communities along, you know, the the Galveston area. I think there's a location to your west um, where one of the homes was built. Uh, to be completely hurricane-fortified. And I can't remember which hurricane it was, but it wiped everybody out except that one particular structure.
0: I think and that was Hurricane Ike. It, it wiped it out the Baltimore Peninsula, but there was that one house that stayed, right?
1: That's right. And so that's the kind of thing that you're looking at. And then, of course, that comes down to the, the, the financial side of it. What does it cost to do these things? And, you know, in a lot of these coastal areas, People have been living there forever. You know, think about Mexico Beach and how old that infrastructure was. And there was very little newer construction there when Michael hit that area. And after they were devastated, the issue was how do we rebuild? And there was a lot of resistance to rebuilding with, you know, all these, you know, vertical structures and structures that didn't look like what had always been there in the past that made Mexico Beach what Mexico Beach was. So there's been a big push. And pull in locations like that to do that. Whereas, you know, places around Galveston and Houston and those areas, um, there's been concerted efforts to actually go in and fortify complete communities and uh, to do these types of things. And then you've got the whole insurance industry on top of that too. If you don't do these things, it becomes very problematic to insure those and especially reinsure them after they've been impacted.
0: Laura, the fortified program is so well advanced now in Alabama. Did, did you reach a critical mass where people have heard about this? I know there are like third-party inspectors, the insurance industry is involved, and, and I think a lot of communities, there are so many fortified homes. Did it almost reach a critical mass where people almost expect there should be fortified houses and they're, they're willing to pay more for a fortified house?
1: Yeah, and, and that is the case. And, that, and that's part of the education and outreach on it. Um, you know, when you live in an area like that, there's that constant fear, there's that risk that, that you're dealing with. And so as fortification is really taking hold down there, it's reduced people's fear. They they feel much better about buying property in that area, staying in that area, because there's always that fear of what am I gonna do? when it comes and people are feeling a lot better about it. We're starting to educate kind of multiple generations of people about the importance of it to the point that that program is actually working toward moving inland in Alabama and dealing with tornadic winds. And because there's the same kind of fear of tornadoes in Alabama. And so we're talking about moving that fortification to homes that take on uh, tornadic wind. So, yes, it's been a a really interesting process. And, you know, I think the biggest issue is changing the minds of the builders in terms of having to build those things. And I think public demand really helps with that process. And then the role of the insurance industry in this, you know, the insurance industry willing to, you know, um, make those reductions in cost if you have those fortifications because you're reducing risk. And so I think that helps a lot, too, because exorbitant insurance is difficult for a lot of people. And so there's a cost benefit there that's really good.
0: So could you see in some areas maybe insurance reducing premiums if people are building to a higher code or building above maybe the, the minimum building codes?
1: and and that's the, the the idea is to to be able to do that my research center is an insur- insurance research center and so we look at that every day and i'm just amazed at the interest that the insurance industry has in mitigating that risk and really trying to develop these resiliency programs that can do that on a global scale and also do it at a a less costly way of doing it. Um, The um, IBHS over in South Carolina, they do all kinds of work on structures, on wind and fire and flood. And so they look at the cost analysis of what it's gonna cost to do those things and trying to reduce the cost of doing those things and making sure that they're done right. And so I've just been really impressed with the, the couple of decades now of work on all of this and the impact that it's had.
0: No, that's fantastic. And you know, the way it should be is if we build better and reduce our risk that we should be rewarded and, and hopefully those, those premiums can follow as well. Laura, I wanted to ask you, I know you've consulted and collaborated on several projects that investigate how the public perceives probabilistic forecasting. Could you tell us what you've learned on these projects?
1: Yeah, the probabilistic forecasting is very interesting because, you know, for years, you know, your forecaster would tell you there's a 20% chance of rain or, Um, You know, there's, you know, certain types of risk from a probabilistic effort. And the weather enterprise has always been very interested in whether or not the public understands probabilities. And the general public, regardless of whether it's weather probabilities or any other probabilities, has some general understanding of it from their math courses and, and that sort of thing. But when it comes down to messaging, we don't have time to do the math. And so the question is, what does probabilistic information mean to the general public in a high risk situation where they don't have a lot of time? They got to figure out, you know, is there a risk? Is there a threat to me? Is there a threat at my location? So for a couple of years now, the Weather Service and several of the other agencies involved have been trying to figure out a better way to convey probability. And so there's some researchers that have been working on it from a mathematical perspective and putting it in front of the public. And I've done the same thing in all of my studies is did you understand your risk? What information did you get? And what did that probabilistic information mean to you? And a lot of people make mistakes with it. So what the Weather Service has done is they're trying to figure out how to explain probability very simply and it's not just to the public, it's also to the emergency managers and all of the decision makers because they all have the same problem with probabilities. And so you've got to get it to the weather enterprise, the emergency managers, the broadcasters, everybody that's involved. And then you also have to then pass that on to the public and in a very short time frame. And so with the emergency managers and first responders, it's a matter of, okay, what's the worst case scenario? What's the best best case scenario and doing that in terms of breaking your probability down into kind of like three parts. And so the worst case scenario, you know, that's, you know, the chances of that happening. And they'll give what they call a percentage exceedance that there's a percentage exceedance that the worst case will happen or the best case will happen. And then you you're left with what they think will really happen. And so that goes back back to that binary decision making that we were talking about. It's like it's much simpler to understand that our risk is you know, probably of a worst case scenario, whatever those impacts might be, there's a 10% chance or a 20% chance or a 30% chance sure. we could be in that worst case scenario. That makes more sense to the public. And so what they're working on right now is how do you word that? How do sure. you graphically depict that? And I think words are the biggest thing. There's some research out there about showing the probability, the percentage probability. But then what words do you use to explain it? And there's that exceedance stuff. And that's complicated for the public. So then how do you graphically depict it? Because you're not going to have much time. With you know the message dissemination, so can you graphically show this? Can you you know do images and graphics and use words that make it as simple as possible? And so the Weather Service is working on rolling that out right now. So we're going to see more of that coming out of the Weather Service, which will then translate to the national, to the broadcast media and social media and all the other places we get that information.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, th- this concept of looking at probabilities of maybe wind and flood risk at your location or in your community, I feel like if it's worded really well and, and just helps people um, understand their real risk, perhaps that can help them make better decisions as the disaster's approaching. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, Laura, one last question I wanted to ask you, you know, hazards and disasters are inherently location-based. We know some locations are more vulnerable than others, but I've heard people in the public sometimes generalize and say, hey, everywhere can get a disaster. Florida has hurricanes. California has earthquakes. Wherever you go, something can get you. And, and kind of grossly generalized. Do you think, the, in general, we as humans understand location-based risk, or is that a real challenge for us to understand?
1: I think it is a real challenge to understand, and I think it's a matter of the weather enterprise doing enough outreach to educate people about risk at various locations. One of my biggest concerns are tourists. Tourists are visiting locations where they have no concept of the vulnerabilities of a location. So go back to hurricanes for a minute. So they're going to the beach and there's something out there um, in the Atlantic or in the Gulf, and they're not aware of what the potential risk is to the location that they're getting ready to travel to. And so a lot of those folks will go on in there. They'll get out in the water. They'll get caught in the riptide. uh, Then they'll get caught in. They can't get back out because now it's too late. The planes have shut down. And then they're just like, how did we get here? So we've done a lot of work on educating tourists about the vulnerabilities, the risks at the locations they're traveling into. And that's involved educating hotels and all of the various industries that serve those folks. And we've been doing that for a while now. And I think that's true everywhere you go because there's an obligation to educate your community, your residents about the vulnerabilities. And then people who are there on a transient basis, they're traveling through, they're visiting, uh, they're not familiar with the risks and the impacts. I see a lot of times people are in a location that they've never had experience with the particular vulnerabilities. So like here in Alabama, we get people who come from California And they hear about tornadoes and they're like, oh, this is the worst thing in the possible world because they don't know how to prepare for it. And so I think that's a lot of it is just really educating everywhere we can in a way that people receive it. One of the things that Florida is doing now post-Ian, they're doing these expos in the community. And the emergency managers and the other weather enterprise folks are actually setting up these expos in public places like malls and other community locations where people can come to the expo and go around and talk to the various entities about what the risks are, what the tools are, you know, how is messaging going to work? And they can see equipment. They can see tools. They can talk to people about what these risks are. And then, of course, there's the whole, you know, media involvement of getting that information out preseason for the different types of vulnerabilities so people are more aware of those. You're not going to reach everybody. One of the things we know is that if you reach young people, very young, that stuff sticks with them. And so there's a lot of programs for school kids to try to educate them about vulnerabilities and risk in their communities and what you do to prepare and mitigate those. They take that home to their parents and caregivers, and it makes a huge difference. We have a lot of examples of where that's actually worked and actually saved lives. And yeah. so that's what go ahead. It,
0: it, it just it sounds like education outreach, you know, maybe from some different angles, going to where the people are you know, reaching their kids and grandkids. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Laura, fantastic insights on this podcast. H- how can people find you and your team online if they want to see more about the work that you're doing?
1: Uh, best way to find me is by email or um, at the University of Alabama, our website, the um, Alabama um, Insurance Information Research Center And um, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Laura Myers. And uh, so just different places. Um, Email's good, laura.myers at ua.edu. Happy to share this information in any way that's needed.
0: Laura, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And before we close, what is one last final take-home message you would share with people if there's one thing they really need to think about the social science and how we prepare for disasters?
1: Really, you need a way to get alert notifications about the risks in your communities. You need to be connected. And there's a lot of ways to be connected. You need to find your trusted sources. It may be your broadcast meteorologist on TV. It may be by following your broadcast meteorologist on social media. Have alert notifications on, on your phone. Have a NOAA weather radio. Have as many ways of getting that information as possible so you're not caught off guard by these impacts.
0: It sounds like staying connected um, really before, during, and after the storm and uh, not getting isolated and, and uh, that you can have the latest information of, of what the threats are for you and your community. Absolutely. Laura, thank you so much for taking time to come on the podcast. We're, we're hoping for a, a low impact hurricane and disaster season. But um, if unfortunately there are some big storms out there, I know the work you and your team are doing are going to help save a lot of lives and help a lot of people out. I appreciate that. Yeah, we'll be out there. <laughs> Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. We covered so much great social science in this episode. Really five bullet points stick out to me that were the most important things we talked about. Uh, Number one, this concept of consistent, reliable messaging in face of a natural disaster or extreme weather event and how the public may need to hear this. Five seven, 10 times until they really can take action. It sounded like Laura was saying there's a whole process that people undergo to make an evacuation decision. They're talking to their family. They're talking to their friends. They're talking to trusted sources, and they need time. They need a window of time. They're probably not going to you know, run for the car the first time that they hear there's a mandatory evacuation. So for friends of ours in Broadcast Meteorology, don't be afraid to continue to put out these messaging. Um, you know, we talk about Messaging fatigue. But like Laura said, sometimes it may be someone's 10th time to hear a message, but someone else's first time. So we have to continue to keep up with the messaging and be consistent and continue to repeat. Um, she said that repetition sticks and that's a really good point on this podcast. Uh, number two, I thought it was really interesting that Laura meets with these groups of stakeholders after an extreme weather event, after a natural disaster, and she starts by talking about what they did right. I've never heard of anyone doing this before. We know a lot of times you hear these phrases like, even one fatality is a failure, or you know, if, if we have – big economic losses, it's a failure. And so sometimes after a disaster, there's a lot of finger pointing, there's a lot of blaming. And so when we go into the dialogue post-storm with this posture of who's to blame, it just really breaks down all the relationships. I like what she described. She starts by talking through as a group, what went right, where lives were saved, where losses were mitigated. And then after processing through that, they're in a better situation to talk about what could be improved and what went wrong. I think that's a really interesting approach. I hadn't heard that before. And I could see this being very relevant for local governments, really everywhere from local through state and federal government, but also for companies and different organizations that are going to meet that are going to assess what happened after a disaster for for people in emergency management i think that this approach is really interesting i haven't heard of someone taking that angle before but i could see how it be how it would be really valuable and i think that a lot of our listeners will apply that as they recover from disasters where they live. Uh, number three, I thought it's really interesting. Laura really affirmed what I have often thought that people want to simplify and sometimes oversimplify some of this messaging. We, she mentioned how we're binary. We want to say really, uh, you know, am I forced? Am I um, under an evacuation warning or not? Do I have to leave or not? Uh, really, um, black or white. We tend to want to get there as humans, but disasters like hurricanes are very complex, right? We have strong wind, we have heavy rain, we have storm surge, and it's very localized. It can change a lot over short distances. And so these disasters like hurricanes are more complex than just a black or white or or one category number to describe three different hazards. Uh, I was really encouraged to hear that people are doing research on how we can better communicate this. And in a sense, it's more complex maybe than just giving a a hurricane one category number to describe general risk. Uh, We know that it's more complex than that. And I thought it was really interesting uh, to talk to Laura about this and to hear that there's ongoing research to better communicate hurricane risk to the public. Vertical evacuations, really interesting topic there. I thought her example from Hurricane Michael was um, really on point. You know, in, in that case, really the fatalities were found in these single family residential bungalows that were on ground level. And you might have someone a block away in a condo or a hotel or a, a, a higher building that uh, it sounds like those people generally survived. It sounds like across short spaces in an urban setting or, or a developed town, you could have very different outcomes as far as fatalities depending on your elevation. And so vertical evacuation, getting in a hotel, getting in a high rise, getting in a condo could be the difference between life and death. I realize a lot of people are going to say, hey, we just need to get everyone out of harm's way. We know those of us that live in in hazard prone areas, there are all kinds of reasons people don't evacuate or don't get out in time. I thought it was a really interesting discussion, especially because we've had a a lot of rapid intensification of hurricanes in recent years. Over the past six hurricane seasons, we've had five hurricanes rapidly intensify. By that, I mean that the wind speeds have increased at least 40 miles an hour in that last 24 hours before landfall. In some of these storms, like Hurricane Ida in southeast Louisiana. Back in 2021, Metro New Orleans was not evacuated. It was during COVID. That may have had something to do with it. But also, Ida just absolutely blew up right off the coast of Louisiana. I've heard experts say that you really need 48 to 72 hours to evacuate New Orleans. You can't do it in a day or less. And so places like Metro New Orleans, South Florida, the Houston-Galveston corridor, you have millions of people to get out of harm's way. If a storm blows up right off the coast from, say, a Cat 1 to a Cat 4 or a tropical storm to a Cat 3... How can you get millions of people out of harm's way in less than 24 hours? It's really hard, if not impossible, to do that. We may need to talk about some of these shelter-in-place ideas or a vertical evacuation where people maybe instead of going hundreds of miles, they might go several blocks to a higher building. Again, I know it's going to be a controversial topic, but for those of us that live in disaster-prone areas, these are the type of topics that we're discussing. And I'm really glad that Laura and her team are talking about some of these creative, innovative um, you know, topics that, that a lot of people have not touched before. really interesting uh, conversation and interesting to hear that. Finally, her last take home message, stay connected. Keep your notifications on your phone. Stay connected from as many sources as possible. And I want to point out this is not just when a hurricane's knocking on your door. Get to know your local meteorologist. Get to know who you can trust in your region to consistently not hype the weather. Give you consistent, reliable information that jives with you. You know, it's not just about people understanding the science, but also being able to communicate very well. Know those trusted people in your community and, you know, keep, keep connected to them uh, throughout a storm. We, we talked a lot about Hurricane Ian last year, how originally a lot of the forecast showed it going near or north of Tampa, and people anchored on that. People said, oh, okay, it's going to be a Tampa storm down here in Fort Myers. We can tune out. It's not going to be a problem. We need to stay connected. We need to get updates, especially with, with hurricane tracks. When we have uncertainty in the forecast, things can change in a hurry. We have to stay connected to the latest information and be prepared to leave um, quickly if the if the hurricane changes course. Everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Again, thanks to Dr. Laura Myers. It was a great conversation on this episode of the the GeoTrek podcast. And I wanted to also thank our listeners. Because of you, we're the number one podcast in the topic of natural disasters, according to Feedspot. So thanks for making us number one. Thanks for sharing our content with people. We like to make it relevant. We like to be really applied in nature and you've helped to make us the number one podcast. Again, uh, thanks as well to our marketing and development team in Mobile, Alabama with GeoTrek and CNC Catastrophe and National Claims. We have a great team. That's how we're able to produce and disseminate such great content so frequently. Everyone stay safe wherever you are. I'm hoping that this hurricane season coming up is not a high impact one, but if it is, a lot of this work that Dr. Laura Myers and her her team are doing over in Alabama are gonna help reduce losses and help to save lives. Everyone, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek Podcast.